Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Beats with Kelly Kennedy. I have an incredible guest today. Uh, Sergeant Goodchild is his name, and he helps children uh, be good is his game. And it's a very long and very fun podcast. So I encourage you to honestly watch this one and take the hour and a half um, I know that's a lot of time, but I will say that I didn't want to stop the podcast. I actually pushed off two other podcasts in order to make this one happen because the information and what um, Sergeant has done with his team, um, with his purpose in his life is heartwarming to say the least and gives everyone hope uh, no matter what your diagnosis is, no matter what your you've been told about your child or about yourself, you have to listen to this podcast today. You have to hear his story and his message to the masses. It is beyond impressive. And I highly encourage you to go to his website and see his before videos and pictures because this man is beyond impressive, extremely fun, extremely philosophical. And I just know you're going to enjoy it. So have a seat. It's a little bit of a longer podcast today. If you don't have the full hour and a half to devote to this and you can't watch it, um, I would recommend chunking it in two different sections. But do, if you can, to please watch this one, particularly at the end when he shares what he does at his center for people. And he is accessible virtually as well, not just in person. So I have the greatest job in the world and I appreciate every single moment that you spend with us and all your kindness and your comments and your attention throughout this uh, last year and a half that this podcast has been going and you all give me so many great gifts and I am so excited about giving you the gift of Sergeant Goodchild today. So enjoy today's podcast. It kind of starts in the midst of the conversation. So here you go. Welcome to the Beats. Were you vaccine injured? Is that what? So my mother would have told you that uh, vaccines saved my life. I would tell you that vaccines are what triggered me to go from a, uh, a child with moderate concerns to a child with very severe concerns. So um, when I was... When I was born, my mother had most likely been taking some sort of an experimental medication to make sure that her pregnancy with me was viable. Um, you know, there were other things aside from thalidomide that were being used in the late 60s um, in that regard. And my mother had a history of miscarriages before she ever became pregnant with me. Gotcha. So, um, and she was working in a doctor's office at the time, and she was actually helping that doctor study um, the effects of birth control. She was helping compile information in that regard. And, and my mother's not a, my mother did not graduate with a degree in any kind of medical science. She graduated with, I believe, a degree in um, education and with a minor in Spanish. Um, so, but she ended up in a doctor's office helping him compile information. And, and so 
Uh, I didn't come exactly on my due day. I was a day or two earlier. Um, so full term, you know, it wasn't like I was weeks early or weeks late. It, but he had left instructions with his staff to make sure that um, no one delivered me and except for him because, you know, there was concern because she'd had so many miscarriages and et cetera, et cetera. He wanted to attend the birth. And I didn't come on my due date. He wasn't immediately available to get to the hospital. So they restrained my mother for a period of time. When I was born, I had the, uh, the nuchal cord. So I had the cord wrapped around my, my neck, starving me to some degree for oxygen. Uh, I was somewhat blue and somewhat floppy when I was delivered. My mother and father obviously were thrilled to have their, their first child. But my mother was a little bit concerned about my appearance. And she asked the doctors, you know, is he going to be okay? And the doctors, I mean, we're talking about 1969. So we didn't have CAT scans and ultrasounds and all of this sort of diagnostic um, tools that we have today. And the best that the doctors could offer my mother at that time was to say, we won't really be able to tell you Mrs. Goodchild until he's four or five years old. So by the time I was four, I then had a one-year-old sister that became kind of a comparative basis for my parents. And they were seeing her drive through milestones and, and achieve things that even as a, as a one-year-old, that even as a four-year-old, I was having trouble with. And so they began, I'd been diagnosed by my local pediatrician with an immature startle reflex. So every once in a while, I would, I would startle. We had a busy, we lived at the end of, a. Um, we lived, I basically grew up almost essentially on an island, a little town just north of Boston called Nahant. And uh, it's connected to the mainland by a two mile causeway, but that road is the only road in and the only road out. Otherwise it's a, at its longest point, it's a mile and it's a half a mile wide. So it's a tiny town, about 4,000 residents. And um, we lived at the end of a road on a, on a rocky shore overlooking the ocean. We had tons of seagulls in the yard all the time. We had a dog that liked to bark at seagulls. We had a cat that liked to jump off of things. So there was always activity in the house. So when I would do something like that, my parents would you know, just dismiss it as the cat startled them, the dog barked, the seagull squawked, someone, you know, something had happened that had caused me to startle because that's what the pediatrician had diagnosed it as. Um, but as my sister aged and was doing things that I wasn't able to do, they started becoming more and more concerned about me, about my behaviors. I was the kid that you could put in the corner of the room. And my mother always says she could have left me in the corner of the room, gone shopping for two hours and come back home two hours later to find me in the same corner of the room. I just wasn't interested in anything. I wasn't moving around and playing with toys. I just kind of sat there by myself. And you know, you compare that to my my sister, who at one was like an extremely precocious, you know, getting into all sorts of trouble, one-year-old little girl. And they were like, what is going on? Like something is not right. And so they they brought me to the, they started bringing me to Children's Hospital here in Boston at that stage. And the doctors at Children's Hospital decided that I was going to be pretty significantly learning disabled um, with no specific diagnostics, right? Um, 
they didn't diagnose me as having epilepsy at that point. They didn't, they weren't talking about mental retardation. They weren't saying that I was uneducable. They weren't, they hadn't put all of those labels on me yet. Those would come shortly thereafter. What they did do is they said, we recommend that you get him into an early education setting. Because again, this was, you know, this was when we were first starting to play with early intervention and free and appropriate education was a new thing. And so my parents chose to put me into a Montessori school in a neighboring town. And in order to get into that Montessori school, guess what I needed? Uh, and so when I got my MMR vaccine at four, you know, just before I was five years old, that immature startle reflex went into full-blown, almost status epilepticus, right? My mother says, my, um, when, we, when you, thank God you got that shot, because after you got that shot, you didn't produce saliva for almost a year. That is a very significant injury, right? Not being able to produce saliva, not being able to trigger peristalsis and proper digestion, that is a very significant adverse event following a vaccine. And um, my mother always would say, what if you'd actually gotten the measles? It probably would have killed you. Well, the measles shot, I would argue, almost did, right. right? Because that led into all those other diagnoses that I just mentioned a moment ago. And that led to me putting, being put on an enormous amount of medications. I was on, at different times, I was on phenobarbital, mebrol, clonopin, Valium, all sorts of drugs. Um, I had a ton of upper respiratory infections. And at no time did any combination of any of those drugs ever prevent me from having seizures. I was still having probably a grand mal a few times a week and hundreds of petite malls a week. Wow. And, um, you know, I, I, was, I was very fortunate in that my parents managed to continue to stumble into the right people throughout right. my throughout my childhood. Like there was a point at which my mother was in the seizure ward at Children's Hospital with me. And, you know, there, I wasn't the only kid in the seizure ward at Children's Hospital. There was another mother there. And, uh, and they struck up a conversation and that other mother looked at my mom and said, you're not still putting bounce fabric softener in the dryer, are you? And my mother said, yeah, just earlier today, put one in. And the mom goes, I wouldn't do that anymore if I were you. My mm. mom took out, my mom went home that day and removed fabric softener from the dryer. And that got rid of 50% of the seizures that I was having, wow. that no amount of medications had ever been able to even get close to that level of seizure control. Wow. Right? And, you know, later on, um, when I was in that, when I was in that early education setting, my mom was volunteering some of her time for another local family whose daughter, Sarah, was a near drowning. Um, and they were doing this crazy program where they were doing these really um, choreographed 
um, movements. So they had um, Sarah's family was an extremely wealthy family and a very, very powerful family on a political level. Um, and so when Sarah managed to finally get uh, dismissed from the hospital, her parents took, took her home and used their remarkably broad network to figure out who was gonna help their daughter recover. And what they ended up doing was implementing a program in which they required 70 volunteers to come into the house on a, day, on a weekly basis to help them accomplish this program. Because the way the program was constructed, you went in and the people who developed the program said, okay, um, when does your daughter wake up? When does she eat? When does she nap? And when does she go to bed? And they literally filled every other moment of that girl's existence with work to fix her brain. Like wow. very specific, developmentally targeted, functional movements. And, you know, when you're working your kid 18 hours a day or whatever it is, you know, 16 hours a day, you can't do that alone. No. And so they literally, so my mom was one of the 70 volunteers who was showing up at the house each week, right? She had a shift that was, I don't know if it was Tuesdays and Thursdays or what it was, but she had a couple of shifts every week where she would show up for a few hours and she would help take Sarah through these choreographed movement programs and, and help her learn how to crawl and do all the other things that she was doing. And then she would come home at night and that would be the, the conversation around the dinner table with my dad. Now, I obviously don't remember all this because I was way too injured to have any memory of this. But my dad is a really incredibly smart guy, um, but he never rose to the level of education of all of his peers at work. My father, sat as a, um, a partner in basically every commercial real estate firm that he's ever been a part of. And so the people that sat next to him had graduated from Harvard and Yale and Stanford and all of these kinds of places. And my father didn't. <laughs> um, and so my father was always very careful about, you know, making, making a grandiose opinion without a lot of information because it was just a sensitivity, right? He didn't want anyone to judge him or his, his education. And, and that was, that pervaded the home environment too, where my father would, you know, really sit back and, and think about things. Um, and my father, my mother, it didn't make any sense. Like, why would putting, why would you take a girl who'd nearly drowned at the bottom of the family pool why would you put her up on a table, move her arms and legs in these weird choreographed movements, and then put her down on the floor and ask her to crawl? Like, how does that work? It's not, you know, my, uh, the other thing my father was, was a, a big sailboat racer. So the people he raced sailboats against were doctors and lawyers and entrepreneurs with lots of money, right. not... <laughs> licensed acupuncturists and chiropractors <laughs> and certified clinical nutritionists, right? So none of this made any sense from his world, but rather than stand in judgment on anything that my mom was said, he just took the day off from work and, and went with my mom to, to see what she was doing. And this is always a hard part of the story for me to tell it. I, but 
when he got in the car, he looked at my mom and he said, Martha, what the hell are you doing? And she, she looked at him kind of dumbfounded because she was like, you just saw what I was doing. And he goes, no, 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 Martha, this family clearly doesn't need your help. They've got plenty of help. Our son needs our help. And so he was the one who set up the appointment for me and got the ball rolling. And, and that program, ultimately, I ended up seeing a physical therapist by the name of Art Sandler who put together a, a right. what he back then called a neurodevelopmental or neurophysiological program for me. He was the first person to ever explain to my parents that all of these labels that had been attached to me were due to a brain injury that was not being addressed by any of the therapies that were being provided to me. So nine months after bringing, uh, after beginning all of these choreographed movements, being up on a table and having five adults. I had five adults, one on my head and then one on each arm and leg, moving my body through these really choreographed movements. And I would do 60 repetitions of these movements. And then as soon as they were done, I was put down on the floor and I was asked to crawl. And then when that was done, I did, I did things to stimulate deep breathing. I did things to... Um, learn how to read. I hung upside down by my ankles to develop my vestibulo-ocular reflexes and, uh, and, and change my functional vision. I did, I did really, really intense work. And for the first probably 10 months of that work, I was doing that close to probably six hours a day. Wow. And old, like 10? No, I started um, right before my ninth birthday. Okay. I was still eight when I started it, but I was very close to nine years old. Um, okay. And then I finished when I was 13. Okay, wow. And that first year was my most intense year. My parents pulled me out of school um, and they, my mother got just a few friends. Like we didn't have 70 people coming in and out of the house. Right. Um, but there were three or four people that were dedicated to come out and coming over for a certain period of, not the full six hours, but a certain period of time within that six hours each day, five, five, five six days a week, and take me through that program. But within 10 months of having begun that program, I had my last seizure. So I had my last seizure before I turned 10. I'm 52 today. And I, um, uh, with, a, with a certain amount of embarrassment, I will tell you that I am a, um, I, my, my father-in-law used to call me his alternative sports son-in-law. I've never been interested in baseball or basketball or football. Those have no interest for me at all. But throwing myself and my bike off an eight-foot cliff or a 10-foot cliff and landing on flat, that's where I thrive. That's what I enjoy doing. So I've had a bunch of concussions over the course of my life since recovery. And none of those concussions, none of those head traumas have ever caused me to, to go into a seizure. In fact, I would wow. say I recover really quickly from that stuff. Um, I've got, got 17 screws and four plates in me from all these fun activities that I do. 
You mean since you've been healed since you were 13, you have 14 screws in 17. your body. Seven, 17. 17 in your body from injuries from riding your bike and other various crazy riding my things. bike and break yeah yep yep and and never ha, never have i felt neurologically compromised from any of those injuries and i may That's have up oh, you there yeah did i lose you uh, we, uh, we, you got, you got frozen for a second, but you're back. So okay. I feel really comfortable and confident that my recovery was 100% complete. Yeah. Um, but it, it, you know, so I had my last seizure some, some short time before I turned 10. Uh, but I didn't recover fully. I didn't recover all my academic abilities and all my social skills and all the rest of it until I was just about 13 years old. So it was a four-year process. Um, and I, I did not, that was not an enjoyable or fun time in my life. It's not, it, it's something that I can look back at now with a certain level of gratitude, but that doesn't mean that those experiences are any less any less painful today than they were when I was actually experiencing them. Because I was ruthlessly teased by the girls and I was physically abused by boys mm. pretty much every day in the playground, um, in the classroom, even the way the teachers taught, even the way the teachers um, related to me back then Interactive. was difficult. Like, remember Co Kodak had their Polaroid cameras back yeah. then? I, I don't know. You're, you're probably somewhat younger than I am, but not much. The, um, but Kodak did a whole thing where they were trying to promote their cameras. And the way that they promoted their cameras was to send them out to elementary school teachers around the country. And they gave them lesson plans, right? Here's how you can use our unique technology as a teaching aid in the classroom. One of those was every time your kid, every time a kid in your classroom learns how to, you know, multiply all the times tables one through 10, take a Polaroid picture of them and put it up on the classroom door. It's really hard when your picture doesn't go up on the door for two weeks after the next last person. So yeah, it wasn't a great childhood. Um, and I do have gratitude for it today, but there were some really difficult times. Um, and I'm lucky, you know, I, after that experience, I came home crying. My mother asked me what was wrong and I told her and she said, oh, we can teach you those tonight. And I literally went in the next day knowing all of my multiplication tables. Wow. So it, it, it I don't know. So it wasn't something 
that I ever thought I'd be doing for a living. Mm -hmm. I wanted, especially in my earlier years, I wanted as much distance between that Sarge and this Sarge as I could possibly get. Sure. You know, because the Globe had written articles about me. You know, it's, it's, that it, that's a lot. And thank God we didn't have social media, <laughs> yeah. right? Like, oh my God, that would have made it so much harder. <laughs> to so, overcome that version of you. Yeah. That people right? had a vision of who that Sarge Goodchild was, but that did not embody at all who you became. Right, yeah. right. And so I wanted to distance myself as much as I could through that. And I, did, I tried to distance myself from that by becoming a, a good athlete but you can imagine why I didn't really like team sports. Sure. As yeah. someone who has left off of every single team. Yeah. You might have some right. belonging issues in there. Yeah. The, um, and, um, and, I, and I always compete really well against myself, right? And that doesn't give me anyone else to blame, right? I can't stand it when people are like, oh, you know, if Joe had just gotten up there and hit a homer, we could have won. Well, maybe, but maybe you could have caught that ground ball, right? I, or or the, right. so the um I I like the idea of not being able to lay blame on anyone else for my failures, but at my own feet. So um, you know, of course, that meant I went into the financial industry for a while. Um, at one point was working at a discount stock brokerage firm and decided I really didn't want to do that when every single person working in that office had a bottle of scotch or a bottle of rum or a bottle of something in the middle right-hand drawer of their desk, like literally every single person in the office. It's like, yeah, this isn't, wow. that's not the path. I don't, I don't need that. Like, this isn't, I don't want that stress that I feel like I have to drink all day long to overcome. Uh, so I went into advertising for a while, and ultimately, that's a really funny story for another for another podcast sometime. But my boss got fired and didn't handle his firing very well, <laughs> and, uh, and so within within a period of a couple of weeks of his having been filed, they basically just cleaned the um, the whole department out, and I was fired as part of that exodus and. Uh, and I needed to do something during the winter that didn't involve plowing snow or um, shoveling snow because I like to ski. And those two jobs, do, those two things don't fit nicely together. Right. You, know? you don't end up liking snow very much if you have to deal with it. You don't end up being able to enjoy snow if right. every time it snows, you have to be plowing it instead of skiing it. Right. right? Exactly. And my mother was looking for help. My mother set up the office, you know. And uh, my mother needed help. And that was 26 going on 27 years ago. I thought I was going to do it for a winter. Wait, the office that you're now running? Yeah. In Active Healing? So Active Healing was originally Eston and Goodchild uh, Educational Consultants. Okay. Started very shortly after I recovered, a few years probably. Like I was so, uh, I turned... I turned 13 in 1982, and I would say Eston and Goodchild had been formed and was in business by 1984. 
So, so your mother's mission became, I want to help other people do what I did for Sarge. My mother's way of, of my mother's hobby became, <laughs> yes. My mother didn't have to do it to make money. Okay. My mother definitely okay. needed something that she could do with her time, right? She needed, she needed an outlet for her brain and all of her energy. And there were so many people, I was in the same school system the entire, I went from drooling all over my paperwork and seizing in the back of a classroom and as mentally retarded and uneducable to the co-captain of the soccer team, the, the wrestling team, et cetera, right? Like, on the, on the lacrosse team, et cetera. And all these parents saw that massive shift and sure. they just started arriving at our doors on Saturdays and Sundays and being, asking my mom, listen, Jamie's struggling with this or whatever it might be. Jenny has this problem, you know? Is there something that you did with Sergeant that might be able to help my son or daughter? And so at the very end of my program, there was a boy named Johnny and he had the kind of educational, he, he was struggling with lots and lots of learning disabilities. I was struggling with much bigger neurological issues, but also had a lot of learning disabilities. Right. And our mothers were sick and tired of us. So they swapped. So I would go to Johnny's house after school and his mother would take me through the final aspects of my program and Johnny would come to our house and my mother would take him through the final aspects of his program and so um my mother and his mother ended up starting a business together called Eston or no sorry Good Child and Butterworth Consultant gotcha and then eventually that partnership dissolved. They went their separate ways. Uh, and my mother opened up a new business called Brainworks, which was near her new husband's house. Um, and God, I don't even know, that must have been, that must have been very late 80s or very early 90s. Okay. And Brainworks came into existence maybe 88 or 89, if I were guessing. And she was doing this neurodevelopmental. Yeah, she was taking everything that she'd learned from working with me and applying it with other kids. Amazing. And you were like, I want nothing to do with this. No. I want the finances and I just don't want to shovel snow. So I'll go help mom for the, for the winter. Right, yeah. Fired from the advertising agency. <laughs> didn't want to shovel snow. This is what I'll do for the winter. 26 right. years ago. Right. Wow. And, uh, and so I started in either late in 94 or early in 95, something like that. Um, and, um, and in any case, um, have been, yeah, doing it ever since. Advocating so, for kids ever since. Yeah. And I knew that vaccines were a problem. I, I start if so, if I started in, in 94, Five. By 96, I was very aware of the existence of a vulnerable subpopulation because I saw a lot of it, especially in my early career. Because in my early days of doing this, there wasn't 
like we we had uh, Bernard Rimland, right? The, the um, Bernard Rimland is the I consider him to be the the founding father of all Dan doctors, now called Maps, right? But but he was the one who triggered that whole revolution. Gotcha. Um, Bernard Rimland. So, um, so there, you know, there were some, but, you know, I mean, in 96, like functional medicine, like, yeah, right. Like we didn't understand that autism was a cellular detoxification problem back then, right. That had neurodevelopmental implications. And, and so in any case, I, I, I didn't, I, I've never had a huge practice, right. I've, I don't see thousands of kids each year. Um, but the kids that were making their way into my office, especially in the early days, were largely vaccine injury kids. And in, in your story, like the brain injury was really probably started at birth, right? When you had the cord around your neck. Yeah, there was the, iner- there was the initial fragility there, right? And we know that we, I, I will be the first person to stand up in front of a group and tell you that vaccines are not the only cause of autism, right? right? They're not because I know fully unvaccinated kids who have autism. Right. So it's always always a combination of, um, of factors. For me, it was that, you know, initial oxygen deprivation. Maybe there was a chemical insult that even preceded that. Right, um, the drugs that she was taking, right? Right. And did she and have which, amal- amalgams? Oh, yeah. So there you go. You're preloaded yeah. with all of that, and, you yeah. know, anoxic from not having oxygen at birth with the core. My, my mom was a big fan of root canals. Oh, well, there you go. She's, <laughs> like, She's a big fan of root canals. I don't, she must have had four, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, and, and then as you go through your life, so now you're, how did you go from, I'm working just this winter to I'm, I won't say trapped, you know, like, oh, this is what I'm doing. You know, it's, I, I so when I was working, when I was working at the ad- advertising firm, I was working on Newbury Street in Boston. We had the top two floors of the Tower Records building. It was a pretty kind of schnee schnee job. I got the, you know, mingle with the rich and famous and beautiful people and um and you know but ultimately i'd be i'd be walking down newbury street and all you know it didn't happen all the time but you would you would pass little kids in wheelchairs Mm. that clearly had cerebral palsy that clearly had i so i let me back up a little bit when i went i went to syracuse university and i graduated with a degree in political philosophy Hmm. And I, I gravitated to those subjects because they're the subjects that my mother really understood well. My mother was not a mathematician. Um, and, but, what, but she was, uh, she was really a philosophically minded person. And she taught me Plato and the theory of the caves when I was like 10 or 11 years old. Wow. Right. 
and so there I am sitting in, I'm sitting in philosophy class at 20 something. I have absolutely zero recollection of my mother teaching me about Plato and his, his theories on consciousness and the, and the concept of emerging from a cave, all of that stuff. I happened to talk to my mother the week that I had turned in a paper on this subject. And it was seemingly that I was the only one who really fully grasped the, the subject, right? And I, I had been asked to read my paper in front of the entire class. So I get home, I end up having a phone conversation with my mom on a corded phone that was plugged into a wall. <laughs> You're so old, Sarge. <laughs> and uh, and um, and she goes, oh, of course you know that. And I'm like, of course I know that. Why would I know that? And she basically read my paper to me. I was like, what? She goes, yeah, I taught you all that. I was like, mom, you just basically rehashed the entire paper I just read to the class without having read it. Like it, it was in, oh, she goes, oh, I taught you all that stuff. I, and so I've always, I've always kind of leaned that way. Philo political science and philosophy were easy subjects for me at school. And when I met with my guidance counselor and he was like, well, we've got to figure out a career path for you. He's like, you seem to do really well in political philosophy and, uh, or political science and philosophy classes. And here at Syracuse University, we're one of the few universities that has a political philosophy class, which is a combination of the, you know, these two subjects. And I'm like, okay, well, what would I do with that? And he goes, well, we get recruited by the FBI. There be, you're very, people with this concentration tend to be really analytical. And a lot of times the FBI comes and recruits for their analysis units from Syracuse. And I'm like, okay. And he goes, the other thing you could do is you could go on and get either a law degree or a, or a medical degree, and you could sit on an ethics board. Hmm. Mm. And even in college, I was like, that's what I'm going to do. Mm -hmm. Because cutting kids' heel cords before we try teaching them how to crawl is so abusive that as a practice, it needs to be halted. Right, like, I, and so I just I had this flame inside of me even when I was in college, where I, you know, God forbid anyone ever use the R word in front of me. Mm. It like that wasn't going to go over well. They were going to be berated <laughs> verbally in a way that they weren't expecting. Yeah. And so I always, I, I always had that flame inside of me. So I used to walk up and down Newbury street and I'd, you'd, you'd come across kids who are obviously disabled. And I would always be like, Oh, I could help that kid. Mm. Right. Yeah. But the bigger part of me was like, yeah, but I don't want to. Almost really. So, um, so yeah, so so when I started, so when I started at at what was then called BrainWorks, um, 
and then for a short time became Eston and Goodchild because my mother remarried. So she became Martha Eston. Oh, I wondered what the Eston was about. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. My, yeah, my mom remarried. And, uh, and so it became Eston and Goodchild. And then um, after that, I took, it, I took it over and I rebranded it as Active Healing, which it's been ever since. And so we kind of started this podcast a little unusual, but I love it. And we just dived right into your story, which is fabulous. And I'll do a, an intro later, but I, I want you to unpack. Well, first of all, if you've been listening to this and you haven't heard the intro, yes, his real, real given God given name is Sergeant Goodchild. And when I first met him a couple of years ago and heard him on stage, you can imagine now why I was crying um, per his story. But also I was like, really? His name is Goodchild? Like, really? He really helps children like complete disabled children become as powerful and amazing as he is and his name is good child that is like you can't make that up that is so good literally canadian it was bon on font (laughs) it was what it was bon on font historically so the the french canadian uh, side of the family gotcha so all three of my all three of my names are last names so there were the sergeants, the lows, and the bon on fonts. And that all became Sergeant Goodchild. Sergeant Low Goodchild, the second. There's three of us now. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that's right. You just say you named yours. So what is, can you unpack for me cutting their heel cord? I know that's a terminology I've heard you use, but I want the community to really understand what, when you say cutting their heel cord, well, you'll do it. You, so when a, when a child has cerebral palsy, right? One of, the, one of the ways to release the tension in, in their feet is to cut the heel cord, to surgically cut the heel cord. Now, in my opinion, the heel cords are tight. So function always equals structure and structure always equals function. And that is, a, that is a natural law that you can't break, right? It doesn't matter if you apply it to business or you apply it to nutrition or you apply it to the physics of working out. Mm-hmm. Function is always going to lead to structure and structure is always going to lead to function, right? If you're grossly obese, you're going to have a hard time running the Boston Marathon, right? Right? Because the structure of your body is simply not going to allow. But the function of training for the Boston Marathon is going to structurally alter your body, right? right. So <clears throat> when a child is going through this natural course of development, one of the first things they do is they learn how to crawl on their stomachs in a military type of pattern. And when done correctly, that involves using the, the big toe, the large toe on the bottom of one foot to develop a lot of forward thrust and momentum. And when we put that foot through that range of motion, what happens is we arch the bottom of the foot, we stretch the heel cord, we begin to wear hip sockets, we help form the secondary curves in the spine, we begin to teach the eyes how to pair with the hands, and we track across the horizontal. All of these things begin unfolding for the child. And that's not even to talk about what's happening neurologically, because neurologically, we're beginning to work 
on a part of the brain called the pons. If we do this exercise incorrectly and we don't use the toes and we, we don't drive the momentum of the body forward through that big toe thrust, a toe dig culminating in a, in a push, what you'll get is really tight heel cords. It's the same as if, if all you do is wear five inch heels as a female or male for that matter. But if all you do is wear five inch high heels, eventually your heel cords are gonna get tight, right? And mm -hmm. the, the, the act of wearing a flat shoe is gonna be painful. So function determines structure. I don't like to see kids' heels cords released in surgically. I think that there's all sorts of things that we can try from a functional perspective before we go into an invasive procedure like that. And, and this is what they do to kids with cerebral palsy with that diagnosis to relieve the tension of the muscle spasming, essentially. And what yes, it's one, of, it's one of the tools they use. They'll also use Botox, right? injectable so, botulism into yeah, paralyze right. that muscle. Right. Yeah. So there's, there's, there's more techniques now than there were 15 years ago for this or 20 years ago for this, but yes, heel cord releases are very common. And going back to what you were talking about with digging that toe in, creating the arch in the foot, extending the ankle up to the pelvis, the two you know, curves in the spine, as well as the eye tracking as they're moving across the floor. This is, you're talking about the natural development of the neurology based upon crawling of every child, regardless of their, like every child has to go through this to properly neurologically develop, correct? Every child has to go through this in order to develop what we in Western cultures appreciate. Right. So in Western cultures, <clears throat> we want a philosophical child. Philosophical answer to that question, Sarge. I love it. Keep going. In in Western cultures, what we prioritize is the ability to for seated education. Right. We want you to be able to sit in a chair, receive instruction, and ultimately learn how to read and comprehend what you're reading. Right. That's what yeah. we value. We do not value being able to hit a monkey from a hundred yards with a blow dart. That is not important to us at all in Western cultures, right? But in some cultures, it's super important, right? So I don't want, I don't ever want my words to marginalize another cultural experience because there are cultures in which kids never touch the floor until they're nine or 10 months old. But those same kids, they don't, they're never going to experience a Western education. They're not gonna be expected to sit in a chair for six hours a day and be instructable. Mm -hmm. So the way that they develop is particular to the needs of their culture. But in Western cultures, if we want, we need, we, need, we need that child to be able to grow up through our, the academic system as it's currently structured, then we need them to be able to track across the horizontal plane. We need 
visually track across the horizontal plane. We need their eyes to be able to converge. We need them to hold a, a solid fixation point. We need the focal vision to be in its very specific realm. And we need the peripheral vision not to collapse in on the focal vision. We need the reflexes to, to be integrated so that they're not interfering with our ability to maintain, for instance, the symmetric tonic neck reflex. When that's integrated, we can sit in a chair with both our knees and our elbows bent without any discomfort. But when that symmetric tonic neck reflex is not integrated, it is impossible to sit in a chair in that posture. So you end up, you end up tying your legs around the chair legs. You know, you do this kind of a thing. Yeah, I'm familiar. Are you? Yeah. So <laughs> I, I'm literally, I have been through, I, I, I think I've been looking for a desk chair to sit yeah. in, to do podcasts and so forth for three years. I finally have a chair at the office I'm trying out right now. But as you see this chair I'm sitting in, like I will often change my seating throughout my day because there's not one chair that I'm ever comfortable in because to sit with my legs uncrossed and my arms uncrossed, if I sit in this position for too long, I will not be able to, um, I'll have dead legs by the time I stand up after a certain yeah. amount of time. So there's a really good chance that you have a symmetric tonic neck reflex, right? And that- well, I'm sure you your friend Peter would say 100% she yeah. does. Yeah, and and you were probably a fidgety kid all through school. I I don't think I was in all honesty, yeah. but I, okay. I was a very good student. Uh, maybe I was, I don't know. I went to Catholic school, so I don't yeah. think there was any allowance <laughs> for that. Um, but I I've seen it more as I've, matured and gone to adult classes find, find myself in classes as adult rather that I cannot sit anywhere but the front row otherwise I'm fully distracted and cannot sit still if I'm in the front row I can pay full focus attention to the speaker I'm good yeah. if I sit in the second row like you may have noticed at BRMI I've I love my friend, Christine Schaffner, but I don't think we should ever sit together because we were like <laughs> chatty Kathy the whole time. And it was like that because I, I saw what she was responding to and I saw what this one's responding to. And I, then we got to take note of that. And I'm like, okay, I got to sit in the front row. So that's just so yeah. interesting. So there's, there's, you know, the, all the experiences that we're collecting that are, I, I think it's, I'll back up again. And I'll just say that we have a body for one reason and one reason only. And that our body is a vehicle that allows our brain to go out, collect experiences and become educated through that process, mm. right? Our body is just a vehicle for our brain. Right. And, and if, if, if we treat it like, if, if we treat our bodies as though they are remarkably important in the development of the brain, we wouldn't be putting kids in jolly jumpers. Can you imagine taking a kid and putting a kid in a jolly jumper after that child has learned how to stand up and walk? No. They will hate it. Yeah, feel they will find it. They will find it constraining and restrictive and they will want out immediately right? But putting a child into a jolly jumper 
or one of those vibrating chairs that they're on their back or in the bucket system that clips from the car seat into the swing that's in the doorway and then into the, into the high chair at the table, like all these systems. They're, they are confrontational for the child. They're confrontational from a visual perspective. They're confrontational from a structural perspective. And they're confrontational to that child's ability to develop in the way that nature intended it to him to or her to. We are born with a remarkably intelligent in, innate system that carries with it the design for our entire developmental process. And we have to learn how to get out of the way of that process. We have to get kids back on their stomachs. When again, function determines structure. This whole back to sleep campaign that in my opinion is a raging disaster. Agreed. When, when, a, when a child is raised on their back and they develop a flat spot in their occiput, can you imagine what's happening on an internal level with that child as far as their brain development is going? That's all we should need to see as a society to go, hey, we had the right intentions when we did this, but they are having bad consequences. And we need to be able to turn around and change things for the better. We need to be able to recognize the failure of our society right now that I'm seeing at such an epidemic rate is the inability to recognize safety signals. Hmm. We do not see safety signals. When, when the when the rhetoric is so strong, when the propaganda is so strong uh, in favor of a medical procedure that someone can, someone in my life who I care very deeply about got his COVID shot kind of just half willingly, right? He, he, what, he, he's, he's not convinced that it's gonna be a big deal, but. He wants to be able to go on vacations with his wife and he wants to be able to resume life as normal. And so he just goes ahead and does it. He develops extreme fatigue and loss of strength in his hands. That's a safety signal. We miss that safety signal because we presumpt because we're so presumptive about the safety, right? That same person goes on to get his second shot and ends up with a pacemaker. Mm. Still, not one medical doctor has asked him about his vaccine experience. Right. They're not looking. right. Another opportunity to pick up a safety signal. He then passes out while, while using a heavy piece of equipment that could have killed him easily and bloodily killed him. Right. After his third shot. It, when a child is raised on their back and they develop a huge flat spot on their back, that is a huge safety signal. Why aren't we paying attention to these things? Changing the entire shape of the head, therefore the function of the cycle of the cerebral spinal fluid and uh, so much. I mean, as a cranial sacral therapist, I mean, I'm not, I do cranial sacral fascial technique, but it's very similar. And it, it's just like, when I see that 
and and I know as a when I had Silas at um, eight years ago, it was like if you watch them naturally, they want to be on their bellies. They don't want to be on their backs. They want to flip over, and and I feel like people force them to lay on their backs. And like you said, that is a sign. Hey, common sense. If your kid. If your kid vomits in the middle of the night, do you want him on his stomach or her back? Right. Right. It it defies logic, in my opinion. Yeah. That it's, uh, but again, the propaganda is so strong. Yeah. And and it's impossible to get the message out. It it. Well, I'm an eternal optimist as we started this conversation yes. with. It's yeah. not impossible. That's why we're doing podcasts and we're encouraging Sarge to start his own podcast to get the message out because I think we are in the age of information, obviously, and people are able to get the information rather than... Um, and and we, needed, we needed to come to a point. We needed to get to this point. Yeah. We, needed, we, we needed it. I think... I, I believe I recently read that 40% of the people hospitalized in Massachusetts, 40% hospitalized in Massachusetts with COVID are fully vaccinated. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you, I don't know how you don't recognize that as vaccine failure, right? I mean, that's what it is. It, it's, it, it's, when, when everybody knows somebody who's fully vaccinated, but still ended up in the hospital, you, you, you have the opportunity to, to illuminate an enormous part of the population. And yet there, I just today on my Facebook page, um, someone in one of my recent threads said, uh, simple fact, Sarge, we are dependent on vaccines. And I replied with, your family may be dependent on vaccines. My family is not. Just simple, like not that, I, 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 I don't think that that was aggressive. I don't think it was nasty. I don't think it was mean. His next comment to me was, you should have child protection services called against you for neglect. And I sit there and go, you know, to that same kind of thought process is, you know, are you vaccinated? And I'm like, no, I'm not. And you're vaccinated, but that's because you don't eat organic food. You don't exercise. You don't take breaths. You don't sleep well. You have silver fillings. You have all these things. And rather than worrying about me wearing the mask, how about you change your lifestyle so that you're living in a, an alignment of what your organism, your body wants. Therefore, you won't be dependent upon a mask and a vaccine to get your health from. I do, I do plenty of things in my life that I don't need a mask or a shot. The, the presumption that those of us who've chosen not to get vaccinated for whatever reason are being irresponsible people is simply a, a fabrication that could not be further from the truth. Because those of us, there's a, there are some people who are not getting vaccinated who are doing it strictly for political reasons, right? Yeah. There is, right, there is that subset of people who are just so aligned with either, you know, they love the current administration and they just can't wait to get a vaccine 
or they hate the current administration and simply because of that refuse to get a vaccine. But the fact of the matter is that's a very small part of the population. The, the people who are choosing not to get vaccinated right now are some of the most responsible people in terms of their health, right? They're, they're not relying on their health insurance to create their, their future health for them or lack thereof. Right. The, and, yeah. And, so it's frustrating when you have these interactions online with people, but if you see my, if, if my reply to his nastiness was, you know, I'm surprised by the depth of, um, of your discrimination against people of certain religious, morally formed conscious beliefs. And, you know, I went on a little bit from there, but that was basically the tone because you can't fight nastiness with more nastiness. If you get really nasty, you just sink to their level and it doesn't do our side of the equation any favors at all, which brings us full circle, right? It, because it, it totally brings us full circle. <laughs> and I appreciate you bringing that full circle because I think that one of the things that you do so well is because you've been an advocate for so long, as we said, you know, you're not angry like so many others. And I think it's taken me of the last 18 months, 15 months probably to let go of the shock and awe about the status of people being able to be controlled by fear. And over the last three to four months, I feel like I've really settled down to like, hey, I'm not angry at you. You just don't have the same information I do. You don't, and you're believing what somebody in a white coat has told you, which they're just doing exactly what their uppers are telling them because that's all they know. Yet I have seen little caveats, like I mentioned to you, where the hospital in my hometown allowed me to walk in and treat my mom unvaccinated and treat her with light therapy and sound therapy and put her on liposomals to help boost her immunity. And my 81 year old mother with every comorbidity on the books walked out of the hospital and was trying to be convinced to get a vaccine two days ago by her primary. And she is not willing to do it because she's never been in line with taking a bunch of medications or anything, but she's like, I but, don't understand why I would do that. Cause now I have the antibodies and she's right. And again, missing important safety signals, right? Like yeah. there are definitely signals that say that after, you know, first of all, there's, there's, there are the signals of the fact that your antibodies are much more durable when created right in an in an in a natural way than yeah, when you get a single spike protein from a vaccine right but there's there was and i'm not sure if this is bore out today but there was a lot of safety signals saying that people who are getting covid shots after they'd been sick were actually doing worse yeah so yeah well, and what my question to my mother was, was, did he ever ask you what you did to get out of the hospital at 81 years old with diabetes and all sorts of other co-gorbities, as I mentioned, did anybody ask you how you did that and how come you're doing so well? 
And I know to be true from listening to my brother's report of the doctor visit is that the doctor sat there and talked to her about all the people that have died in the last week, all these people that are infected with COVID, how bad it's going to be, how her cognitive might not ever redevelop, or it might, and we have no idea why. And I sat there listening to that going, well, we do know why it's her active actions that she's taking, like active healing, no pun intended, but pun intended, <laughs> active healing things that she's doing at home. I still have her doing light therapy. I still have her doing the, the, um, liposomals. I'm having her start to do nebulizers of homeopathics. Like she's taking actual steps that will improve her health. So she's not a long hauler and this can be overcome. So I'm fully confident that she'll overcome that. I mean, she's made huge progress in two to three weeks. I can't even, I can believe I look forward to the day that the doctors and people are looking at these safety signals and going, well, Hey, this isn't working, but this is working. And maybe we should look at what is working. Like I've been blown away for years when we have clients that come to us and I'm sure this is going to make me crazy to ask you this question, but so you have this amazing uh, organization in Boston called activehealing.org. And maybe we can give them a little quick tour to show them the type of therapies that you um, employ there but you have clients that come in with devastating illnesses that cannot function. And then you get them to a point where they're functioning fully healed. How many calls a week do you get from their neurologist, from their medical team going, wow, what'd you do? I want to start changing my way. I'm doing this to help as many clients. Tell me you get those calls, re-inspire me. You don't get I, I wish. I wish I could tell you I get those calls. The, the closest I get to that is, Mrs. Jones, your child seems to be doing really well. Whatever it is you're doing, keep up with it. Right. Right. But they don't That's the help. closest. They, they, it's, <sighs> I'm not sure how to, their, their way in order for them to change the way that they practice, they would have to, they would have to start something entirely new. Yeah. Which does happen, right? Yeah. You get, there's this small group of physicians who are basically pulled into holistic fields, I feel usually by moms, right? They see that they get that, that they, they see a dozen moms, two dozen moms. And then finally they get to the breaking point where that 36th mom comes into their office and says, you know, this is what I've done for my child. And the doctor goes, you know what? I've heard this from 35 other people in the last month. And they actually have the ability to reflect on the choices that they've made thus far in their career and decide that maybe that there's a better way to do things. But that ability to reflect involves often an enormous amount of judgment, right? And, and that can be a very difficult reality to face if, if you're suddenly hit with the reality that your actions have not been in the best interest of your clients. 
and not and, just self-judgment, but judgment from your peers, judgment from the associations, a judgment from, you know, miss your, your male practice. Cause you're not doing what everybody else is standardly doing. And, you know, you might be getting results, but it doesn't fall in our PDR. It's not what we said to do. Right. Yeah. It's that's, that's, I don't know. I mean, you know how the people ask on, you know, different social media platforms, you know, what's one, if you could change one thing in the world, what would it be? For me, it's always the same one thing. Which is? Get rid of direct-to-consumer advertising. Yes. That will change everything. Because no longer will our, our mainstream media be beholden to the pharmaceutical companies as their primary source of revenue. So at the end of my podcast, I always ask everybody, what's the secret you want to give everybody that if you had a microphone and could engage all 7.6 billion people on the earth right now, what is that secret? I'm guessing that would be your secret. That would be, well, that would be the one thing that I would like to see change in kind of the political atmosphere. But what I would like everyone out there to understand not only about themselves, but especially about their children, is that you should never allow anyone's opinion of your child to become your child's reality. If my parents had accepted the prognosis for me, I would not be here today. They would have institutionalized me in a place called the Little People's School, they would have visited me infrequently, and they would have left me as a severely brain-injured kid who would have continued taking an enormous amount of medications to which I'm sure I would have succumbed before now, right? I really don't think I would be here. I, who knows? Maybe it would have been a seizure that would have caused a heart attack that would have taken my life, or maybe it would have been a drug interaction, or may it, maybe it would have been something just because as being fed institutionalized food. But I don't think I'd be here today if my parents had made that choice. So the one thing that I would want to leave all of your listeners with is no one's opinion of you has to become your reality. And I hardly want to talk after that, yet I want to exemplify that in part of your story, which you didn't really go through today, but I've heard you talk about in the past, is that at one point, the medical teams that your parents were seeking help from that community for you had signed off on basically saying you should focus on your other two or three children. And yeah, yeah. they told, they said I should be institutionalized and you should focus all of your energies into your two healthy kids. And, and you were eight at the time? Oh, that was probably when I was eight or nine. Years. Yeah, it could have been anywhere between seven and nine, I would say. Right, right before right. the universe had right. given your mom access to this and your dad watching it and then the change right. happening. And, yeah. you know, I, I don't know if we can or if you're willing to, but, and I'm sure it's available on your website. Sarge's full story complete with pictures is impressive to say the least. And I encourage you to go 
look at those pictures and see what was very evident in his lack of development and who is sitting in front of you that you're listening to today that is one of the best quafter of words that I've ever heard actually, <laughs> let alone telling us, telling him that when he was a kid, he had learning disabilities. And to his point, don't ever listen to what they're diagnosing you, labeling you or your children as, because it can be overcome with the proper tools and with removing the blockades to, to illness. And so how do you do this in your office? I know this has been the most amazing podcast. I really, and it's been totally out of order and that's okay. Cause we just did the beginning without really doing the beginning. We did the end kind of not at the end, but I would love for you to give a quick tour if you're okay doing that. I am. So before I give a quick tour, let me just say that the, the focus of the work that I do at Active Healing has always been and will continue to always be working, leveraging developmental milestones to trigger growth in very specific regions of the brain. Um, and because we're literally looking to mature the nervous system, right? And so that has been my focus is very personalized, unique programs of developmental movements to change the, the structure of the brain. Which then improve. changes the function once you change the structure. Right. And you do not have to live in Boston to begin to work with Sarge, correct? You do. No, you, I have clients all over the country. Which is so exciting because just having an assessment done with him is it reinforces what you probably already know about yourself or your kid, but also is like, okay, but there's actionable steps I can take. Like I, after we talked a little bit earlier about how I can't sit in a chair, I thought to myself, and I wasn't like that as a kid. Well, what changed? Oh, at 20, I had a head injury. Perhaps yeah. That right. And that, and that yeah. very well could have brought back your symmetric tonic neck, right? Exactly. Especially the nature of how you got that head injury. Exactly. So give me, give me two seconds, Yeah, two literally seconds. like less than 30 seconds. I will be right back. Yeah. Um, and I, I will give you a tour of a, a quick tour of active healing. Um, and I will say that all of the technologies that I use at active healing have primarily been vetted through the autism community, because if you've got a brain that is actively on fire, where the inflammation is just so profound, it's really hard to build something that is actively burning down. So I believe that autism and a lot of other sort of the epidemic of childhood illnesses that we see have at their foundational level, a problem with cellular detoxification. So I now offer at Active Healing a suite of services that allow me to actively detoxify kids. And I do it in an environment now where I not only help kids with learning disabilities, brain injuries, and attachment and bonding disorders, but I have people coming into the office who I'm supporting that have cancer, that have early onset Alzheimer's disease, that have um, all sorts of complex medical disorders. Um, including chronic regional pain disorder, mm. um, sports injuries, all sorts of different people now come into active healing for self-care on a very regular basis because 
they feel it's really beneficial. So I'm gonna turn on a couple of lights and, yeah. uh, and get rid of this table. And I will be back in literally 30 seconds. Perfect. And while you're doing that, I will say a couple things um, about Sarge and how we met. And so Sarge is involved with the Bioregulatory Medicine Institute as well. He's one of the advisors and he's one of our keynote speakers when we often have events. And, um, you know, he is a wealth of information on an emotional level, on a physical level, on a neurological level. And Un, much like myself and I, and he is not a doctor. However, I would put his knowledge up against so many doctors and physicians and phys physiotherapists, physical therapists, because what exactly he just said is so incredibly unique that he's looking at the development in the brain as to taking actionable steps physical functional steps that create structure in the body that allows proper functioning and development of the nervous tissue and the nervous system. And we're talking about the central peripheral and the autonomic nervous system working in unison together to allow the information to go where it needs to go. And if they're not properly developed, then there's no flow of that information. And so you can imagine why Ayn and I are very into Sergeant Goodchild's work um, because of how it affects the flow state, how it affects the ability of the innate intelligence, the autonomic nervous system to go into healing function without the proper structure. You can't do that. Okay, there you go. All right. So I always start, I always start my tours in the back of the office. It's just my habit. So I usually start in here. So in here, what we have, that mat that we're looking at and that little gray computer next to my tissues. Yeah. Right there. He didn't expect to do a tour, so I really appreciate him doing this quickly. <laughs> that is a pulsed electromagnetic field therapy mat. I have tremendous success with that from all sorts of different perspectives. I do a lot of people who have concussions in the office now and part of their protocol will be to come in here, lay on this mat. We do a deep breathing exercise with them. The pulse electromagnetic field is unbelievable for microcirculation. It's deeply grounding. It reduces pain, it reduces inflammation, and it rapidly increases um, recovery from all sorts of different things. I've completely treated shin splints in just one session in here um, where, where they leave they go out, they compete, and they do not need to come back. The shin splints stay healed after one session. Um, I had a woman come in the other day with a really badly arthritic thumb, and she called me 10 minutes after she left, and she's like, oh my God, my thumb, it's totally healed. It doesn't hurt at all. And she only did 20 minutes in here. Wow. The, um, what brand is that? I'm so curious. because we. Uh, uh, it's, it's a Swiss Bionic. Oh yeah, that's what we have too. Oh, have, is it? Yeah. We have the updated yeah. version. Yours looks a little newer than ours. The, uh, I have the, I have both the IMRS system yeah. and the, uh, tablet driven version. Yeah. We have the IMRS system from yeah. a day or two ago, but that's great. Okay. Cool. So I, this is kind of a temporary space for me right now, as I wait to move into a 4,500 square foot space, hopefully. Uh, but what you can see in between the chairs Yep. is a little um, ion cleanse by a major difference system. 
there's Same one we them. use so far. That's yep. hysterical. There's so I've got three of them. Um, one's kind of hiding behind a chair or something. Uh, I usually I have done this in the past in um, in really nice leather pedicure chairs, and yeah. I'm very much looking forward to getting back to that again. Um, but it works the same either way. Uh, these are I I chose a major difference because they showed such incredible success with kids on the autism spectrum. We know that uh, for a for someone in the four to six year old range, that in 120 days, we can reduce their ATEC scores, the severity of their autism by 45%. And when you get into the 13 to 18 year olds, we can reduce their autism by 65%, right? That's huge. How many foot baths? So in the course of 120 days, that would be about 90 foot baths. Okay. The, um, in here. Yes. That's a sunlight and far infrared sauna. Um, I absolutely love this sauna. It's a it's really comfortable three person sauna. At active healing, I make sure that it's heated up to 120 degrees for you when you step in, and then we turn the heat up to 150. You know, assuming that's what you want, but um, pretty much everybody does. And we do it that way because if we have you, we want you to step into it at a therapeutic heat. And then we want the infrared panels to stay on the entire time you're in there. So if we get you in at 150 degrees, it's just like your oven, right? If you set your oven to 375, it's going to heat up to 375 and then it's going to shut off for a while. And then it's going to come back on and shut off. I want those panels on the entire time you're on there so that you're being exposed to as many of those, um, of, as much of that far infrared light as we possibly can. But 90% of what you sweat out is toxic material. Um, it is really phenomenal for blood pressure. It's 600 calories in a half an hour and we do 45 minute long sessions. Um, so it's deeply detoxifying. It's great for blood pressure. We've got the chromotherapy as you can kind of see right now. We also have acoustic resonance therapy in there. So the bench will vibrate to whatever music you're listening to, and you can pick the color of light that's in the ceiling above your head. Um, and oh, we can, most importantly, we can elevate your core temperature by two to three degrees in there. So um, let's say that there was some virus or some illness going around, it wouldn't be able to survive for more than five minutes above 130 degrees. So we're putting you in there at 120, 125 usually, and then it's building to 150 over the course of 45 minutes. So you can literally incinerate any virus that might be lingering in your system if it's still in the mucosal membranes. So that is so interesting. I mean, I knew about the virus and I appreciate you bringing that up. I want to talk quickly about the, because we have a sunlight too. And we, I've always been taught because it's all about the lights. Like I, I agree with you. It's not about the heat necessarily. It's about the lights being on, but I've never done it where you go in at 120, turn up to 150. What I do is say, go in cold and then turn it on so that all the lights stay on the whole time. So you're getting the benefit of the lights, but I'm going to change my protocols now. Yeah. Get in you because the therapeutic benefits don't start until you hit 120. 
And so if you get in at like 85, 90 degrees, you're only reaching therapeutic by the time you're getting out. Right. Okay. So, so I heat the sauna up. So I heat the sauna up for 45 minutes before anyone arrives. Right. Yeah. We turn ours on every morning too, but that's really interesting. So far, so, we have the same office. This is so exciting. Although this is our next piece of equipment right here that he's going to show us. I'm so excited about it. Tell so, us all about this. So that bag is filled with those by those two oxygen concentrators. And it contains 900 liters of about 94% pure oxygen. What I do is I stand you on one of these machines. So those three platforms, there's a white one, a gray one, and a green one. Those platforms, I'm going to put this down for a second. I'm going to have to look at my messy office for a minute. I apologize. It's okay. When he does a workshop, he often crawls on the floor because he teaches people how to crawl properly. And um, his lecture is watching him crawl, and he puts this stuff on the ground. It's great. He's very flexible, this one. Ooh. So... This is a voice coil. Okay. So this is a huge voice coil compared to the size of my head, right? Yeah. The, um, this is a very, very large voice coil. A voice coil is the piece of a, of a speaker that sits at the base of the speaker and from which the sound emanates. Normally, the, a voice coil like this would have a huge cone that came off it. Okay. Okay. A huge fabric cone that came off it. If we had a fabric cone that came off this size of a voice coil, you'd be talking about a cone nearly probably five feet wide. So okay. it would be a huge stadium level speaker, okay? Um, so this platform right here has a voice coil this voice coil is attached to here, to the underside of that. And it nests inside a magnet that's about this big around. And a magnet that's about that big around. So, so as we push a frequency of sound out of this voice coil inside the magnet, sorry. <laughs> all the wires yeah. everywhere. What happens is the, 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 the sound, the frequency of sound meets with the magnetic force and it drives this up and down. So okay. whatever frequency, whatever frequency I put into that voice coil is going to cause the machine to respond. And different frequencies of sound resonate in different parts of the body. So if I put four Hertz into the plate. Yeah. See how well you can see me when I do this. So there's, there's the plate. Yeah. So if I put four Hertz into the plate. Yeah. This is a nice set. This is a nice view of my torso, huh? It's perfect. I know you're standing on a plate and we're going to see what your body does. Oh yeah, we can see it. Wow. So now the plate is, the plate's not a rocker plate. It's not one side of my body going up while the other side's going down. 
It's my whole body is going perfectly vertically. So this is four hertz. So four hertz is really good for boosting the immune system. And you can see that there's a lot of movement in the plate right now. Yeah. You can see that there's a lot of movement in my body right now. Yeah. If I wanted to go and work on different aspects of my lungs, I could go up to 16 hertz. And I don't know, you can probably hear it in my voice right now, but the vibration is much faster. So right. there's less movement in the plate because it's a higher frequency. Higher frequency, yeah. Does that okay. make sense? Yeah, so, so if I wanted to work on the mitochondria, I can come down to 10 hertz, right? And right now I'm stimulating the mitochondria in the body. If I want to go stimulate the adrenals, I can go to 12 hertz. And right now I'm stimulating adrenal function. So I can pick, I can pick really specific frequencies of sound. And I can pick groups of frequencies that resonate in the calves, or I can pick a different group that resonate in the thighs, or I can do the abs, or I can do the hips, or I can do the back, I can do the shoulders, I can do the arms. Like I can, I can hit all these different areas of the body, or I can go after different organ function, I can boost the immune system. It's a remarkable piece of equipment. And there is no engine. There's nothing mechanical at all. It is the speaker coil inside a, inside a magnet. There's no motors, there's no pistons, there's nothing. It doesn't plug into the wall? It plugs into the wall. Yeah, okay, okay. But, it, so, it, it's, no. but there's no motor, there's nothing rotating in there. There's no pistons, there's no mechanical components. No. Right, like the vibration platform I use. And so how do you know, is that what that chart is above it? Like which so frequency? There's, there's that chart frequency. above it. Yeah. This is an old chart and it's a little bit misleading because they don't make these turbosonics anymore. Now what they make is this guy over here, which okay. is a sonics unit. Right. It's they don't have the same 12 programs on the Sonics as they did on the TurboSonic, but they operate basically the same way. Like if I, you can, I can put this here. All right, so there's the unit. Yep. So I can turn this on and you can see it does exactly, I can go down to four Hertz here. I can turn the intensity up. I'm going to really give myself a good bounce right now. Yep. That's so, good for your lymph. Oh, it's unbelievable for your lymph. Yeah. The, um, so, and if I want to go up to 10 hertz, you know, here I am at 10 hertz. And I've got this one turned up higher than I had the other one turned up. Yeah. But it, it, and this one, instead of having one voice coil, it's got two voice coils and two magnets. Wow. So it's about 20 or 30% stronger than the white one. Gotcha. And then do you hook the oxygen up while people are doing that? So what happens is, so I use the TurboSonic mostly without the oxygen. Okay. But 
I have someone who comes in, I have a couple of people that come in very regularly to use it with the oxygen. One of the things that happens when you stand on a sonic whole body vibration machine is you're literally vibrating every cell in the body. And when you vibrate the cell membrane, you open it up and you make it much more porous. So if you take a homeopathic remedy and then jump right up onto a sonic whole body vibration machine, that remedy is gonna get much deeper into the cell and the impact from that remedy is gonna happen in a much faster way than if you don't use a whole body vibration. So some people take a homeopathic remedy and their homeopath is like, okay, we're gonna to have to wait two, two months before we give you another remedy, et cetera. No, we put you on this and in like two weeks, you're gonna be ready for your next remedy. Right. It, it, so if you're taking a supplement, like you're taking D3 or you're taking something else that you know, has to be in your system for 45 minutes, before you absorb, you take that supplement 45 minutes before you arrive, and then we run the whole body vibration on it. But oxygen, oxygen's utilized immediately by the body. So what we do, <laughs> hello, you look absolutely stunning today. Love that. <laughs> the, the um, what we do is we put you in a fighter pilot mask. I'm sure the autistic kids love that. That looks like this, right? So this goes over nose and mouth. Yeah. And we plug you directly into that. This has a huge hose on it. See if you can see this. So if I hold it right here. Yeah. Can you can you can you see it blowing my hair or is it not? No, you can't really, honestly. Yeah. So there's a ton of oxygen coming out of here right now. Okay. It's big, it's a big hole. Yeah. There are ribs on that that keep it under pressure. You know, those ribs want to go flat. So it keeps it under pressure. And in, in 20 minutes, you will consume 700 liters of that bag. Wow. And it's almost like doing a hyperbaric dive. Wow. At a fraction of the cost. And time. Yeah, and time. Yep. Yeah. And so that's, and so that's that. You do it standalone. You have clients that do it just standalone. I have clients who come in just to do that. Right. And then this is not my nearly, not nearly big enough NR space. So. Oh, this is your awesome. This is where I do the work with the kids. Right. So this is where I do all my crawling. It's where I do all my creeping. Um, you can't really see it here, but I've got, um, over there, I've got a massage table that I fold out where I do all those um, choreographed movement patterns with the kids. Mm -hmm. This is called a peg arc, which is really good for uh, fixation and tracking and convergence skills. Um, yeah. Oh, and then this huge unit here. Can you see that? Yeah. 
Above my head, yeah, above your head, rather. Oh, is this for hanging upside down? No, that's interesting. What is this? My kids' favorite thing to do when they come in here is hang upside down by their ankles. Ah. Um, so, um, so yeah, I, I strap them up by their feet and that is the structure from which I hang them and I swing them like crazy. That's awesome. And all, all of it, that was a huge part of my recovery process as a yeah. kid. And it is a huge part of um, a lot of programs that I put together. And it's great because it, it has a tremendous amount of therapeutic value. It is a really good heel cord stretch, going back to that part of our conversation, because of the way the, way the straps get tied around the ankles in a way that is a really good heel cord stretch. It reduces muscle tone um, in the legs, and I think even in the arms. It pulls the alignment of the spine into, into a straight shape because it's the one time in life where gravity is actually pulling you into alignment as right. opposed to throwing you out of alignment. It, puts, it, it changes the position of your diaphragm so it encourages deep breathing. It forces the smooth muscle tissue in your chest to constrict so that not all the blood and oxygen go to your brain, but you can keep some in your arms and legs. And I think that makes you more efficient at moving oxygen around in your body when you're standing upright. It puts a ton of visual variety in the world. So it's great for vestibulo-ocular reflexes. Obviously it's increased blood flow to the brain. Uh, it's where I learned how to read. I learned I, how to read hanging upside down. I remember you saying that and different than an inversion table because of the way you strap the ankles. Different from an inversion table. I don't know if you'll be able to see this, but obviously this thing, that yeah. killing king and swing. So wow. I've got kids who try to touch the ceiling in here. Wow. And not only can it swing like that, but that what you see swinging in the background is on a rotational device. Oh, so wow. I can have them swinging and spinning. I can have them staying, staying dead still and pirouetting. I can put them Woo. in orbits where they're going in little circles and a bigger circle. I can pendulum with them spinning like they invent new ways of spinning. Kids have a blast. <laughs> yeah. It's much more I'm dynamic sure. than an inversion table. Yeah, that's so interesting. Very cool. And so it's all to, again, retrain that nervous system to develop. Yeah, we got to get, so uh, the average kindergartner will spend about 300 seconds a week spinning. I, I think, I want to say it was Lyle Palmer. He was a professor to all kids graduating with a degree, a graduate degree in special education at Wyona State University, went through Lyle Palmer's class. I think it was him. He sent a bunch of his grad students out with stopwatches and, uh, and a, a, a piece of paper. And, and literally timed how much, like every time like a kindergartner like ran through the classroom, did a quick spin while he was running, got marked down as a second, right? They 
tumbled from one place to another. It got marked down as two seconds. If they did this or that or the other thing. So every time these grad students witnessed a kid doing any kind of vestibular activity without being prompted, mm -hmm. they had to record the approximate amount of time that the child spent over the course of the day spinning. What he learned was that the average kindergartner spends about five minutes a day, uh, five minutes a week, excuse me, spinning. And it's a really, really important aspect of brain development is that vestibular stimulation. When you're mm -hmm. talking about a child with a learning disability, a brain injury, a developmental disorder, neurodevelopmental disorder, behavioral issue, whatever it might be, what you're looking at is an immature brain. And so what we have to do and what I do at Active Healing is I focus on the 20% of what a child does during their normal development that leads to 80% of their neurological growth. Mm. But if we can focus on that 20% and give it like a huge chunk of time every day, then that 20% is going to go towards accelerating their maturation and give that child an opportunity to catch his peers because we'll be spending so much time on what would normally be 20%. If we can turn that into 60 or 70% of what the kid's doing in a day, then it's gonna rapidly accelerate his neurological maturation. And that child will then have the ability to catch up with her peers, right? Mm. We don't want a kid to spin for five minutes a week if we're looking to catch them up with their peers. We want them to spin five minutes, three times a day. So they're doing three times as much in a day as they would typically be doing in a week, right? And there's lots of different ways to accomplish that. I mean, you can take a kid out to a grassy hill and have them roll down it. You can have them do forward rolls. You can have them do somersaults. You can you know, invest in a gymnastics class where they'll get tons of vestibular stimulation. But if you're looking to create a therapeutic environment in the home, suspended inverted rotation is an amazing way to stimulate that aspect of their development. And it's fun. So it's got all these therapeutic benefits to it, but it also is a carrot that you can like dangle out in front of the kid. Because when you're asking a kid to crawl and you're asking them to crawl on their stomach day in and day out, and they have to get 600 feet a day done or 900 feet a day. You think, oh God, 600 feet, that's not that much. No, it's the entire length of a football field and back again, right? And if, yeah. and if I put you on your, if I put any adult on, their, on the floor and asked them to do 600 feet of crawling, when they wake up the next morning, their shoulders are gonna be really sore, right? Or some other aspect of them. If they're right, doing right. it correctly, their shoulders will be sore. The, um, you're asking eight-year-old kids to do that. You're asking 12-year-old kids to do that, three-year-old, two-year-old kids to do that. So it's really, it's, it's a labor-intensive work, right? It's worth doing because you can go from being a kid who should have been institutionalized to a successful business owner with a family and a passion for nuts and bolts. <laughs> right <laughs> the uh but it's hard work so having something 
that's really enjoyable for the kid, but also has this unbelievable therapeutic aspect to it. You know, you can be like, as soon as you're done, as soon as you're done with your, with your choreographed movements and you get 200 feet of crawling done, I'm gonna hang you upside down. And they bust through the 200 feet of crawling. And then you go on, you do a couple more exercises, then you do another choreographed movement pattern, you put them down on the floor, they get another 200 feet done. Then you spend some time on like a balance beam. That's a balance, I don't know if you can see it. Yeah. But yeah. that's a balance beam right there. That's a really cool balance beam. It's four-sided and that one acts like a tightrope. Oh. When you, uh, when you get out on it. I'm probably taking too much time, Kelly, but it's one of my favorite things to do. So this is on its narrow edge, right? Yeah. And not its narrowest edge, but its next narrowest edge. So you'll see. Oh, wow. That is, whoa. Yeah, okay. I'm, I'm, I, I usually can do that no problem. Yeah, but, but you're doing 15 things right now, yes. The, um, but yeah, but so that, so you can, this can be laid on its side and it can be the easiest thing in the world to walk on. But as the child progresses, we need to increase that challenge. Right, because that's how organisms grow. We challenge them, we put pressure right. on them. So that's that's a pretty comprehensive tour of my office. Well, you are a wealth of information as I knew. This was such a fun episode. And I, I pray that people have turned on the watching the video versus just listening to the auditory because there are so many actionable things to watch in that last, whatever it's been, 10 or 15 minutes. But I, if you want more information, which I'm sure you all do, go to activehealing.org to find uh, Sarge Goodchild. And you can go to Active Healing Inc., which is his Instagram handle. He has been permanently kicked off of Twitter because he's, because he's brilliant and wise and we don't really know why else. Uh, but he's also on Facebook as Sergeant Goodchild. So that's how you would find him there. But if, I'm most, I'm most active on Facebook. Okay. Good to know. Good to know. And so we just thank you so much. You know, the name of this podcast is the beats from our heart to yours. And I'll never forget the first time I saw you speak and you put up that picture and we're telling the story. I was so hook lined and sinker sink sunk that by the time you revealed that it was you, I was full on crying and then I have felt you today a couple of times get very emotional. And the one thing that I would say that sticks out to me and impresses me about you is how connected you are to your heart and how connected you are to your story and helping other kids and adults, I'm sure, but kids to, like you said, not be limited to, limited to some label, some diagnosis that isn't you, gave you. And I am so thankful for your work, so thankful for your friendship and your collaboration on this podcast and many of the other things I'm sure we'll do in the future. And I just, any last parting words you wanna share with the community? Thank you so much for your time today. Kelly, I wanna thank you very much for all of the work that you're doing out in the world. And I am honored to be on, 
on the beats with you. Thank you so much for having me on as a guest today. I, I really appreciate you're helping me spread the message about the work that I'm doing at Active Healing. And um, I, would, I would end just by saying that one of the things that keeps me optimistic is being connected to people like you who are doing such phenomenal work. And I'm so glad that uh, we found each other through the Bioregulatory Medical Institute. And, um, and thank you for all that you are doing to bring a positive change into this world. I really appreciate you and, and Ian, if I'm, I, Got it. I always want to say Ian. <laughs> Everybody does, yes. Um, so, so thank you. Thank you for letting me be a, a part of this process with you. Well, this was so fun. And I, I've made an intention the last couple of weeks to have more fun in my life. So this is a perfect opportunity for to have fun today because I'm home doing my podcast, which is so unusual, but Silas is sick. So we decided to keep him home today. And it has been very light and airy, even though it's very deep subject matters. And that's because of you. So Mutual Admiration Club is now complete and truly from both of our hearts to all of your hearts. Thank you for spending your time with us today. Thank you for your comments, which I always appreciate your comments. And if you, if the, if you like it, like us, if you want to subscribe, go ahead and subscribe. That's all I'm saying about that. Cause Silas has given me, that's my new way to say that. And we'll see you next time all on the beats. Take care. Hello. And thank you so much for joining us and spending your time here with us at the beats with your host, Kelly Kennedy. And I know today more than ever before, you now know better how your body works. And at the very least, we hope we've helped you raise some questions and help you continue to investigate. We are here to help you naturally optimize a better version and vision of yourself on every single level. And after today, you can better engage your innate intelligence and allow for proper regulation and proper regeneration. Make sure to subscribe to never meet, miss a beat again. We hope you've enjoyed this week's episode. And just a reminder that this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast is not a substitute for medical advice or professional advice and care by your doctor or other qualified medical professionals. This podcast is created with the intention to provide information and education. This podcast is created with the understanding that it does not constitute professional advice or medical services. If you are looking for help in your journey and seek a qualified medical practitioner, or if you're looking for a biological, not meds practitioner, we can help you. Someone who's trained and a licensed health coach and someone that can help you make changes, especially when it comes to your health. That's what not meds mission is about. I hope you have enjoyed listening again to this podcast. It's one of my favorite things to do. And if you do, please feel free to share it with your friends, your colleagues, uh, for the tips of living the biological foundational life and living in the flow. And if you have been listening and love the show, please do leave comments. We love reading your comments. We really do. And you can subscribe to us wherever you hear your podcast. Thank you so much from our heart to yours. Mm -hmm.